Well, good morning. It is a blessing to continue our study in 1 John. As Pastor Perkins said, we find ourselves this morning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. So please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord blessed me uh, with preaching to this congregation quite some time ago uh, when we were meeting in the elementary school. And if you recall, we started out with Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 9. And I was very desirous to show you Christ from those passages. In fact, we had learned that wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8 was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we got to Proverbs chapter 9. And we learned that there was someone named the adulterous woman, or Lady Folly. And we identified her as the Antichrist. As time would go on, I would be blessed to preach with Brother Brad out of the book of Daniel. And in my sermons, we saw the Antichrist time and time again. So at this point, you might think that the Antichrist is a pet topic of mine. I assure you it's not, but it is an important one. And that is where we find ourselves today. If there was going to be a title for this sermon, I would call it, You've Been Warned. And the general objective for us today is that God has warned us not to perplex us, but to protect us. Contrary to the thinking of many, the doctrine of Antichrist is an important apostolic warning that, if neglected, could result in eternal peril. If you're keeping notes, this will be our outline. All from one verse. Number one, the presupposition. Number two, the pronouncement. Number three, the present. And number four, the proof. Now, up front, I want to tell you we're going to spend most of our time in heading number two, the pronouncement. But as you'll see, all these points will fit together. So now that you're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, let us read what the Lord has spoken through the prophet and the apostle John. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help now, for we need it. This is a topic that has much confusion by many in the church. Bless me now, Father, to present this truth clearly that your people may be encouraged, built up, and warned. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, by way of introduction and reminder, the Apostle John here is writing to those little children under his spiritual care at a time nearing the end of the first century, a time when there was an increasing threat of aberrant teaching from false teachers who were in the church 
who would later be identified and exposed as pseudo-Adelphoi, which means false brethren. And these false teachers were teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different morality, a different ethic from that of the apostles' teaching. And now, this elderly apostle John, likely the last apostle remaining alive on earth, now sees with his own eyes that which his fellow apostle Paul prophesied would come to pass. Call to memory how we discussed Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts decades earlier from John's own time. And here's what Paul said decades earlier. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Now, as we have learned thus far, John and Paul and all the apostles have a burden to those under their care. And now John is correcting the error that was swirling around in his time, recognizing the danger that was before his flock as he now shepherds them so that his children in the faith will not be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. That is also Paul to the Ephesians in verse 14 of chapter 4 of that epistle. But here John reminds them of the apostolic authority that is held by him and the other apostles over and against these false teachers who had no such authority. We have heard the Apostle John thus far in his epistle account for his apostolic authority. He presented the true Christ. He presented the true gospel. And he drew out implications for holding right doctrine. Remember, that leads to right living. We have heard how to recognize false teachers and brethren in the congregation. And we have been encouraged in Christ and warned of the trappings of the world and the flesh and the devil. But John encouraged us last week by having us consider the end of all things. Remember that? 1 John 2.17. Let's glance down and look at that. Where John says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. And here's the encouragement. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And now John, I believe, continues with this theme of time as he continues his warning. Look with me at the beginning of verse 18. The apostle says, children, it is the last hour. This is the presupposition that all history is redemptive history. First, John's declaration here that it is the last hour reveals a biblical framework to our conception of history and one that I'm sure we are all aware of. As opposed to many today and even some in the first century, history is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end. History is not cyclical, 
A vain repetition of random events with no objective goal or climax? No. Nor is history eternal with no beginning and no end. But rather, all of history is decreed by God, unfolding according to his purpose and stretching towards a goal. A goal that was first revealed to Adam and later unfolded and revealed by further steps. And not surprisingly, John is communicating an apostolic truth here. This teaching was not unique to John. Again, listen to the Apostle Paul teaching his child in the faith, Timothy. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 2 Timothy 3.1 What John identifies here as the last hour, the Apostle Paul recognizes recognizes as the last days. Now there may be a perceived difficulty here because elsewhere in the New Testament we read of the last day, singular. Like when our Lord said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. John 6, 39. Or when Martha, after hearing the comforting words from our Lord about her brother Lazarus being raised from the dead, remember what she said? Lord, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But this is not the last hour that John is speaking of. These are not the last days that Paul is speaking of. What Jesus is speaking of and what the Bible is speaking of when it says the last day, singular, is that glorious day that we know as the day of the Lord. Spoken of throughout the Old and New Testaments, the day of the Lord is none other than the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds in glory, when the resurrection of the just and the unjust will occur at the same time, consummating in the final judgment of everyone at the same time. But the Apostle John and Paul are not referring to that day, singular, when they speak of the last days or the last hour. What they are speaking of is that period of time spanning between the two comings of Christ, the time between the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and its final consummation. And when John says, little children, It is the last hour. I believe he is specifically drawing from the Old Testament and pointing his beloved to the book of Daniel. And it is there that I would like to turn with you. If you could, please turn to Daniel chapter 8. After God had given Daniel various visions, and one in particular of the ram and the goat vision, you might remember that time in Daniel. A vision that was symbolic of the dominating world empires that would come in the future. The angel Gabriel was instructed to interpret the vision for Daniel. And here's what Daniel recalls in verse 17 of chapter 8. So he came near... Where I stood. This is Daniel talking about Gabriel coming near to him. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. 
But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision that he's giving him is for the time of the end. And I believe that there is a direct reference here when John says, little children, it is the last hour, that he's pointing back to Daniel of this prophesied time known as the time of the end, what Paul would call the last days. You can compare this text in Daniel with the, a few verses later in verse 19, Daniel 11.35, Daniel 11.40, Daniel 12.1, Daniel 12.4. It might sound like God is warning us about the future to come. And again, if you recall our time in the book of Daniel, you will remember how this theme of redemptive history was inescapable. The whole theme of the book of Daniel was teaching how God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world, whether they be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, or any other nation on the face of the earth, then or now. God reigns over them all. Amen. He is the king of kings. He is the one who raises up empires and topples them down. Daniel 4.35 and it is his kingdom alone that will outlast them all. We heard that over and over in the book of Daniel. It was a tonic to our souls. It was to mine. I know it was to you as well. But as we have seen, Daniel was told about a time of the end. The end days. And I believe that is what John is pointing to specifically. It's to these prophecies when he says to those in the first century, children, it is the last hour. In other words, I think John could have said it like this. Children, we're living in that time prophesied by the prophet Daniel. God said it was coming, and now it's here. Pay attention to what God has said. And I believe a serious study of the Apostle John's writings will reveal that he draws on Daniel extensively in his gospel in his epistles, and especially in the book of Revelation. In fact, I think there's good reason to see John as a prophet like Daniel. Have you ever looked at John that way? An apocalyptic prophet who was commissioned by Christ to not only carry on the ministry of the visionary dreamers, but to be their climax of sorts in the new covenant? See the power and the glory of God that he could take a simple fisherman like John and turn him into an apocalyptic prophet who would disclose to the world things to come. And the solidarity and continuity that the Apostle John has with the prophet Daniel in his Old Testament visions continues in what he says next. Look with me. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. Again, this is the pronouncement. This is where we're going to camp out for a bit and unpack this. That God has warned that this time was coming in redemptive history. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. After John says that it is the last hour, he now adds, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, the first question that comes to mind is, where have we heard that Antichrist is coming? 
But before we get to where have we heard, there again is a presupposition even in this pronouncement that not only has John's congregation heard that Antichrist is coming, but that they've heard of Antichrist. By this statement of John, it is evident that the topic of Antichrist was part of the apostolic witness. And as we will see, it was not just John who was teaching about what was to come upon the world by this one called Antichrist, but it was heard throughout the Christian community. They have heard these things before. It was not new. Now, because we know that the only infallible commentary available to us on any portion of Scripture is where the Holy Spirit Himself speaks on the same topic in another portion of Scripture, please turn with me now to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. We've covered the ground of the difference between the last day and the last days. That last day, singular, remember, was the day of the Lord. And it was actually being taught, at least to the ears, in the Thessalonian congregation, that that singular day of the Lord had already come. And many in that congregation were being blown back and forth, to and fro, by various winds of doctrines, and now Paul addresses them starting in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's what the day of the Lord is. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, or falling away, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, some translations say perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Pause. You see, brothers and sisters, this was part of the apostolic witness. This was not a, a, a topic in passing. The topic of the Antichrist was an apostolic topic that was taught repeatedly. For a purpose, for a reason. Again, not to perplex us, but to protect us. Paul goes on. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Some bullet points of what we learn from that passage in 2 Thessalonians. Number one, that Antichrist comes before 
the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, the coming of Antichrist was still future in Paul's day and John's. Remember, the text is, you have heard that Antichrist is coming in John's day, not that Antichrist is here. Next, preceding the coming of Antichrist, there would be a falling away. Before Antichrist arrives, there is a falling away, an apostasy, a rebellion. Against who? Against God. Next, he is referred to, that is the Antichrist, is referred to by Paul as the son of perdition or the son of destruction. We'll come back to that. Next, this son of perdition takes his seat in the church. That is what the temple of God is. And that is where Antichrist takes his seat in the church. We'll come back to that. He proclaims himself to be God. What does that mean? That he exalts himself and takes to himself the titles, the honors, the majesty, the prerogatives that belong to God alone. And lastly, Paul says that he was being restrained. The coming of the Antichrist was being restrained in Paul's day. But one day, that restraining would come to an end. And the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, would be revealed. So when John says, you have heard, I believe he certainly is speaking of this apostolic tradition that was well discussed in the early church. But where did they get it? Was this new revelation given to the apostles? Well, concerning the totality of the details, it certainly could have been. Remember, new revelation was one of the promises made to the apostles by the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. John records for us in his gospel that Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So is it possible that some of these details about this coming son of perdition were given to the apostles by special revelation after the coming of the Holy Spirit? It certainly is possible. But Jesus also taught his apostles during his earthly ministry about these things. When they came to him on the Mount of Olives, and asked him about the coming destruction of the temple, which stood before them, and the end of the age. Remember our time in Matthew 24? What a blessing of a time that was. I believe that was in the amphitheater that we were remembering at the beginning of our service. And Jesus quoted an Old Testament prophet in that discourse. Do you remember who Jesus quoted? The prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel. And so when John says, you have heard, I believe he's not only speaking of the apostolic witness concerning the details about the Antichrist, but also to the Old Testament, and specifically to the book of Daniel. 
It is here that our Lord talks about the future coming of the one whom Daniel prophesied about as the abomination that causes desolation. More specifically, our Lord says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, and then Matthew says, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand what Jesus meant by referring to the book of Daniel concerning this abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place. I believe there's a correspondence to that holy place in the temple of God. We've already identified that the temple of God is the church. Now even though in context, in Matthew 24, 15, I believe that Jesus is warning about the destruction of the temple and the Jewish state in 70 AD, but I also believe it has a broader application and reference to the Antichrist, who was still to come, even after the temple was destroyed. And so, heeding our Lord's instruction, that brings us back to what we have heard during our time in Daniel. And I'm going to summarize some of the key points from our time. Contained within various visions and dreams given by God to the prophet Daniel was a window into the end times, the last days, or as John puts it, the last hour. During this last hour, which we now know to be the time between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ, a little horn would arise while Rome was mighty on the earth. That was Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. That this little horn would oppress and make war against God's people. Chapter 7, verse 21. That he would speak boastfully of himself while simultaneously speaking against the Most High. And that he would try to change laws and times. That was Daniel 7.25. That he would do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. That was Daniel 11.36. That he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Daniel 11.38. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people. And he will distribute the land at a price. Daniel 11.39 Now, at this point, I think it's important to remind us of what Paul taught to the Thessalonians. When we are interpreting unclear scriptures, we are to look to the Holy Spirit's infallible commentary elsewhere in the scriptures. And these prophecies in Daniel were notoriously difficult for him to understand. Remember? He was even sick physically by trying to understand what it was that these visions meant. But I think it is, a, it is clear that Paul and John, by extension, are speaking about the same entity. The one whom Daniel understood as the little horn and the abomination of desolation and Paul spoke of as the man of sin... And the son of perdition, John now calls the Antichrist. And what is an Antichrist? An Antichrist is someone who denies Christ or takes the place of Christ. That is Antichrist. 
someone who denies Christ or takes his place, or both. And this man of sin, Paul says, takes his seat in the church. And I would argue that this man of sin, this son of perdition, will arise from the church. This will be John's argument in the coming verses about those who went out from us so that it would be shown that they were not of us. Where did they begin? In the church. This was Paul's prophecy to the church about false teachers arising from your own number. Remember to the Ephesians? These teachers will rise among your own ranks in the house of God. In the church. But I believe this is also what lies behind the Apostle Paul calling the Antichrist the son of perdition. There is one other place in the scriptures where that title is used. One other place where the son of perdition is used. It is applied to Judas Iscariot. Jesus prays to our Father in John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, speaking of the apostles, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Oh, what comfort in those words. And not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition, the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, Judas was not the Antichrist. John is writing well after Judas had hung himself. And John is saying, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Remember, this is still future in John's day. So Judas Iscariot was not the Antichrist. But just as the abomination that causes desolation in Daniel we identified as Antiochus Epiphanes in that intertestamental period, he too prefigured the Antichrist. And that's what I believe Judas is doing by being called the son of perdition. And what Paul is doing by calling the Antichrist the son of perdition. That Judas prefigured and typified him just as Antiochus Epiphanes did during the intertestamental period. Just as the Roman cohorts did when they sacked the temple in 70 AD. But here in 2 Thessalonians, in the light of what Paul teaches concerning the Antichrist, taking his seat in the temple, in the church, we see a correspondence with Judas. Remember, Judas was one of the twelve. Judas was deemed to be one of their number. Not just a follower of Christ, but an apostle. What import that has for our identifying the seedbed of Antichrist, where he will spring from. And do not let Daniel's description of this man of sin as being one concerned with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts, be lost on you. Judas loved money as well. He would steal from the money bag. And worse, he would literally sell out the Lord Jesus Christ for money. 
I believe that when Paul calls the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, he wants us to fill our minds with these things. You want to know what the Antichrist will look like? You want to be able to identify him? That's what Paul wants us to do. Look to Judas. Look to Daniel. Look to what God has warned in previous revelation. Now, has there ever been anyone who has risen from the ranks of the church of Christ that fits these descriptions? And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our confession of faith. If you have your confessions, you can turn to chapter 26. If you have a hymnal, you can find our confession in there as well. Chapter 26 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph 4, reads thus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. Our confession unashamedly points to the Pope of Rome as being the Antichrist. But Reformed Baptists of the 17th century were not alone in this. In fact, they were confidently holding the same convictions that the Reformed community held many years prior. In fact, the claim that the Pope was the Antichrist was so common that it was understood to be self-evident by Protestants. From Martin Luther to the Westminster Confession of Faith, from the Irish Articles to the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists, Protestants all agree. But sadly in our day, things have changed. And I say sadly because you have a point, or you have a, you have a choice to make here. Either the Pope of Rome is that man of sin, that Antichrist, or he's not. And brothers and sisters, there are many faithful brothers, many faithful Reformed brothers, who do not hold that view. We are not to be convinced of such things on the basis of logical fallacies. I could say, look at these Reformed theological giants who held to this view. You should too. That's an argument from authority. That's a logical fallacy. I'm not going to make that argument. I could say, well, hold on. It's not only that these theological reformed giants that we all hold dear in our hearts that are gifts from Christ to the church taught these things, but all of them taught these things. That's a logical fallacy. That's a plea to the majority. We don't believe it based upon that. It's my desire that you see this to be the truth because it's based on Scripture. It's based on Scripture. Because sadly, 
Many have abandoned this for various reasons. The common evangelical presupposition is that the Antichrist still hasn't come. You may have heard the saying, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing people he never existed. Well, if there's truth in that, I would say there's also truth in the greatest trick the Antichrist ever played is that he hasn't come yet. If you watch enough TV, which I encourage you not to, I don't know what enough means in that sense, but it doesn't, it's not an encouragement to watch it. But if you watched enough TV, you might hear of the Antichrist on the National Geographic Channel or the History Channel and about this coming world leader. People have pointed to world leaders as being the Antichrist. Henry Kissinger, Gorbachev, you name it. But the Bible doesn't say that the Antichrist is going to be just a world leader, but that he's going to arise from the church, that he's going to take his seat in the church. So we're not to hold this from an argument from authority, nor an argument from the majority, but an argument from Scripture. And we don't have time this morning to go over all of the trappings of Rome. I included for your edification and instruction a handout that was put together by Brother Samuel Renahan, another Reformed Baptist pastor who holds to this view, who just listed in summary form some of the things about the Roman Catholic Church that identify them being not only a false church, but a synagogue of Satan with their head being the Pope, the Antichrist. And in fact, the melu of our own confession is an apologetic against Rome. Much more to be said. And I look forward to much more conversation. But as we have seen in the book of Daniel, interpreted for us by the New Testament authors, I hope that you have seen enough in God's word this morning to at least have you be a good Berean and investigate it. Because I don't want you to believe it just because I say it, or the confession says it. We want to believe it because the word of God says it. This is one of the areas in which the Antichrist attacked the church in the first place, denying that the scriptures were the sole infallible rule of faith. Read the chapter on the doctrine of scripture from our confession, and you will see immediately that it is an apologetic against Rome. We don't want to be little antichrists telling people they should believe what we believe because we believe it. No, we want to believe it because the word of God says it. And so as time is fleeting, let us move forward in what John says. In just this one verse, after he says... Little children, it is the last hour. And as you heard, have heard, Antichrist, singular, is coming. He now says, so now many Antichrists have come. These warnings were being fulfilled in redemptive history. John is going to continue in this epistle to talk about those who left the church. Those little Antichrists who were teaching false doctrine. They were imbibed by the spirit of Antichrist. 
The spirit of Antichrist is like tentacles that reaches out, even from the Old Testament time, all the way through the early centuries of the church, even into our own time, until that singular time when that man of sin would arise. Again, who we have identified as the Pope of Rome, where he would take his seat in the church and heap upon himself all of the guilt that was prophesied about him. But John is saying that in his own day, many antichrists have come. Little antichrists. We have talked about the Gnostic threat in the first century. There were those who were going around teaching of a different Christ, of a different gospel, of a different ethic. They had the spirit of antichrist. And they were in the church and leading those in the church astray. And then they were cast out of the church. And John says they went out from us to show that they were never truly of us. There have been many antichrists even in contemporary history. Those who take the name of Christ and pervert true doctrine. Who elevate their own teachings above the word of God. Think of every cult and schism that has a veneer of Christianity on the surface. You might look at some of these in the first century and they get a following of 100 or 200. Or as time goes on, a bigger sect grows, 1,000 even, 5,000. In our day, we see cults that have garnered millions. The last time I heard, the Roman Catholic Church was over 1 billion worldwide. More on that in the application section. But in John's day, it is clear. Many antichrists have come. And we will see as we continue in this epistle, he will continue to tease that out and what that meant for those in his day and in ours. But this tethers us to the last part of the verse where John says, Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. With everything you've heard in this sermon, you may be saying, are we not doing theology by reading the headlines? Are we not just looking at the world around us and trying to fit something into this paradigm? Are we guilty of that? And I believe that there are many, again, good brothers who have taught in the church, who are still teaching in the church, who would say, I think that's what the reformers were doing. They were looking at their time and they were men of their time, and they saw the height of the Pope of Rome, and they said, this must be the Antichrist. But look at the Pope in our day. Far from the glory and majesty and influence that he had centuries ago. It's wrong to look at history and make these conclusions. We're not to look at history and make conclusions based upon God's word, many would say. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what John is doing here in this last part of the verse. Many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Historical realities are proof of fulfillment in redemptive history. We dare not put blinders on 
to the world that we live in while reading our Bibles. Not because the world has any authoritative teaching for us, but that the Bible corresponds to the world that we live in. It didn't drop out of heaven on golden tablets like one cult teaches. It was brought to us on a river of blood by men who actually lived in time, moved by the Holy Spirit, to write what God wanted us to know for our good and his glory. And therefore we know it is the last hour. We know what Paul was warning of in the Thessalonian congregation. We understand that Daniel is describing for us this same entity that Paul says will rise from the church. What danger there is if we close ourselves off to history and current events? Because God has warned us not to perplex us, but to protect us. And there are many Protestants who have never even heard of this view who then convert to Roman Catholicism. There are many of our brothers and sisters, even in Roman Catholicism, that need to come out. Many who are enslaved by the traditions of Rome that are not found in the Bible. Many who were brought up in Roman Catholic homes like myself, who wouldn't even identify themselves as practicing Catholics because they don't go to church and run that treadmill that Rome puts before them, but they still have a conscience bound, even during this time of the year, to not eat meat on Fridays because that's the way I was told it should be. We are to not have our consciences tied to anything but the scriptures alone. And that's my plea this morning as we address this topic of the Antichrist, a very sensitive topic, a very serious topic. And just how serious was it? Let me end with an illustration. The earliest Christian writing that we possess outside of the New Testament is something called the Didache. The Didache was a teaching that was from the first century and it was an instruction manual for new converts. For those who were, were uh, professing a faith in Jesus Christ and entering the Christian community, this, this was a teaching manual of sorts. It's not authoritative. It's not the written word of God. This is an illustration. Something that happened in time that gives us a window into the first century. Gives us a window into the melu of the Christians during that time. And here's what it says in the concluding chapter of this teaching manual for new Christians. In the last days, false prophets and corruptors shall be multiplied, and the sheep shall be turned into wolves, and love shall be turned into hate. For when lawlessness increases, there... They shall hate and persecute and betray one another. That's Matthew 24, 10. And then shall appear the world deceiver as the Son of God. And shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall be delivered into his hands. And he shall do iniquitous things which have never yet come to pass since the beginning. Then creation 
Then shall the creation of men come into fire of trial, and many shall be made to stumble and shall perish. But they that endure in the faith shall be saved from under the curse itself. There's a clear warning to even new converts in the first century about this world deceiver who was to come. May it never be that you, sitting in the church, have never heard a clear warning of this world deceiver who has come. What I want us to remember at this point is that even though the Didache is not authoritative, inspired or even necessary for our understanding of the text, it is helpful in illustrating that Christians, even from the earliest times, were anticipating this world deceiver. And what's more, the Christian community would encounter him. And so in closing, I want to just read you the end of all the verses that we've looked at today for encouragement. Because God has not left us with a spirit of fear. Not the point of the warning. The point is so that we're alert. Not to fear. Because here is the end of Antichrist. Daniel 7.11 Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Daniel 8.25 Yet he will be destroyed but not by human power. Daniel 11.45, Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When we understand this truth, brothers and sisters, how much more glorious does the dark saying that perplexed Daniel make sense to us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 26 through 27? Listen. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey Him. That is Christ. Amen. Alleluia. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You that You warn us as a good father cares for his children. As a good shepherd cares for his sheep, you are surpassing even in those examples. For you are a good God who warns us of things to come that even in John's day were yet to come. But now we see in ours have. Oh Lord, guard us and protect us as we contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Give us a heart of mercy and love and compassion towards those that we love who are entrapped in such systems of debauchery and heresy. Use us as lights on a hill to shine the glory of the gospel which they do not have, that they may believe in Christ and be saved and bring to an end the one you have promised to bring an end to, the man of lawlessness who deceives, especially those in the church. Let us pray.
in your name. Amen.